Hi, you're listening to Happy Hour with Stretch and Stir Fry. You can find us on sailworld.com, yachtsandyachting.com and iTunes. Welcome to the pod. Today we interview one of my greatest mates, Andy Beatsworth. He's a double Olympian. He's a multiple keelboat world champion. He's an America's Cup helmsman, youth world champion in 85, and an all-round good egg. Andy, how are you today? Are you well? Yeah, not too bad, thank you very much. It's an exciting moment for us to have you um, on the pod today, because Stir Fry has been itching to have you on for ages. Please don't believe that you are the replacement guest. You are number one guest. Well, public clamour as well, Stretch. There was a lot of public... Yeah, has been. Yeah, Facebook lit up and said, bring Beesworth. Yeah. So just, what have you actually been doing today, Andy? <laughs> well, it's my daughter's 17th birthday tomorrow. So I've been making cakes or making a cake with my son, Joshua, and I've been polishing a car. And generally... Have you, have you bought her a car? No, my sister has lent us a car for Holly to learn to drive in because she's got a spare one at home. So. Oh, everyone has a spare car hanging around. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's nothing too flash. <laughs> what, what is it? It's a Nissan Duke, 2012 Nissan Duke. Holy moly. That's Look. pretty flash. That's better than any of my cars. Yeah, that's better it than was, my car at the moment. It used to be a, like a farm car, so it took a bit of cleaning. Not a bad uh, motor to learn to drive in, though. Oh, it's pretty nice. It'd be good. Anyway, it didn't start last night, so I had a bit on. Oh, dear. <laughs> so and head under the bonnet? Oh, no. It's just a flat battery. Oh, right. So uh, what about cool. you, Sir Are you finally afloat? Yeah, got the boat afloat, so engines all back in and run up. The weather conspired against us for the sea trial, so it looks like we're going to go on Monday at five, between five and seven, just to, to run the engines at decent revs. But gearboxes are fine, all beautiful. Engine box looks like new. Big up to Richard Atwell at West Salem Boat Builders, Keyhaven. So um, for any of our listeners, if you see a very beautiful looking blue classic motor yacht, cruising through the Salem, that's Stir Fry, who's finally unleashed from his kind of lockdown house arrest. <laughs> so, um, so don't go too near him, because he'll be wanting to have a beer and a chat, that's for sure. I'll be wanting to have a beer and a chat, and I'll be doing six knots, because I haven't got any money at the moment, so it's uh, wherever I can cruise economically. <laughs> yeah. You'll be surrounded by pro yachties everywhere. Well, funny um, enough, did you, see Shor- did you see Shorzy's post on... Uh... Uh, Facebook today that he's he's obviously doing some renovation and decorative works to his place in Limington. He said to all you professional sailors out there who can paint and decorate, um, get in touch because I might have some work for you. So good on him. But Shawsy being Simon Shaw, one of the um, eminent uh, commentators on the yachting circuit at the moment, folks, um, and multiple match racing world champion with Ian Walker back in the William. day. Ian Williams. Ian Williams even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you done your homework, Stretch? So I've had half a half a glass of gluten-free Peroni, so I'm already off. Oh right, well done. Right, and yeah. kick kick it off, stretch. What you are you asked me for some touchy subjects to ask Andy about, and I sent them to you, and now I, you're just going to let it rumble. I thought interesting topics. Um, I mean, I think one of the things is you and Andy have sailed. Well, you've been mates for a huge amount of time. You've sailed together. God, God knows how many times and, and won in nearly everything. We won't mention America's Cup, but you've won in nearly everything else that you've managed to sail together on. Um, 
But uh, I'm interested, Andy, when, when did you first see um, the very large presence that was Fry looming across the horizon? I'd say the first time I ever came across him was J24s in the 80s when you were sailing with David Bedford. I did a couple of regattas with uh, Lawrence Mead and Titch Blatchford. I did the bow for Titch Blatchford on Hedgehog and you were a larger than life character in the J24. I didn't you say larger than life. I remember when you were saying with Lawrence Mead in the 85 Nationals, <laughs> um, uh, hosted by uh, Cows Combined Clubs, and the long distance race, which they used to have in the J24 Nationals then, was a race around the Isle of Wight. And everyone pushed it really tight at the needles. And there were four or five boats vying for the win, short jibing um, up the island shore. And... We jibed and came out around the end of Hampstead Ledge, the old uh, pilings that were still there. And Lawrence Mead, with his uh, team of kids, uh, decided to go between the piles of Hampstead Ledge. And they whooped, cheered and high-fived as they went through, only to smack the bottom about three seconds after the cheering had stopped. It was quite spectacular. It was spectacular. Ado was uh, on red alert <laughs> and was screaming, no water, no water. And... <laughs> Lawrence said, we're going through. And there must have been three or four inches either side of the boat. And it was, it was quite light, wasn't it? It wasn't that windy. Yeah, it was, yeah. Ten knots. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we went through. <laughs> we're, all holding, we're all holding our breath as we went through. And we didn't hit anything as we went through. We didn't hit, including the pass. Wasn't even sure we were going to get through between the pass. And it was about two or three boat lengths after the pass, we hit something hard and stopped. Well, it was loud. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was about... It was about 10 inches deep. <laughs> we, were bounce, we, were, we were out of the boat, bounced, bouncing across the rocks. And uh, we got off, fortunately. And when we got back to the dock, when we got the boat out, the, the dent in the keel was about six inches below the bottom of the boat. Oh, uh, crikey. <clears throat> it was a little, I'm not quite sure what the word would be. The brave. I was, always, I was always very jealous watching you guys in the J24s. It just seemed that you had an incredible bunch of sailors in what was a really cool boat of, of the time kind of thing. I mean, when you see how many of the top sailors cut their teeth in J24s, I mean, it's an extraordinary kind of class for a while, wasn't it? For a long time. I think, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's the people that make the class, right, I think. And it was raced by lots and lots and lots of good people, both with a history and both who had a history to come. I think, I think it's one of those classes, certainly in the early 80s through to perhaps the early 90s, where good sailors also decided it would be interesting and worthwhile to go and cut their teeth or test how good they were in the J24. So there were regular J24 sailors. There were people that would dip in and dip out. Um, the Keelboat Championship of Champions in the UK was raced in J24. So... Yeah. It, it, it was a hotly contested class. I always remember one of my one of my sailing heroes, Stuart Jardine, and his brother Ado. Yeah, he's twenty years older than anyone else and still competing hard. Well, well, they won that race around the <laughs> island. They they uh, off Yarmouth decided that the bun fight that was ensuing between all, all, all these boats filled with um, kids, uh, and they jibed, sent it across to the mainland shore jibed up the mainland shore and then Lee bowed across from, I don't know, somewhere just after Leap Spit and won by about, I don't know, 400 metres. And then they won. I remember that. They won that race. Yeah. It was a long yeah. race, wasn't it? It was a long race, yeah. It's, what is it, 66 miles around the island? It seems like 166. I know, 24. There was no wind. 
That is a long journey in a J24. Yeah, Eddie Warwick with uh, Peter Cronk on the bow, they were becalmed off St. Catharines and he was absolutely convinced uh, that they had weed. Anyway, they, they were sort of, you know, just sailing slowly. Anyway, he made Peter Cronk jump off the bow, horseshoe, him, uh, horseshoe himself around the front of the keel, up, take a breath, and then do the rudder with a sheet out the back to get him. Very committed youngsters we were, Stretch. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, mainly committed because why I really like the J24s is seeing how much fun you guys had, actually. And we, we had a few local boats from Limington and they were always going off to meet up with all you lot. And it just looked like a properly good party every regatta. But I think we had Fuzzy Duck and... Um, oh, Jessica... Chopper, Chopper Woodman, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And is it Jessica Rabbit, Roger Rabbit? I can't remember what Simon's I boat on, was. I Roger, on, uh, Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit, yeah. <clears throat> I started on that with Simon. Up in Abbasock, that was good fun. Yeah, that was a good, that was a, a nationals, wasn't it? And then the Worlds were in Dublin that year. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And that was all quite eventful. But, um, the Roger, we were, um, we were staying in a guest house in Abbasock and uh, Alex Higgins stayed in the same guest house for a night when he was banned. And he wrote in the guest, guest book, um, Alex Higgins banned for a year, spent one night here. <laughs> <laughs> Did he, did he meet him in the bar later? No, yeah, no, he was he was in the bar. He was he was in the bar most of the time. Mate. He did the bow yeah. from stretch. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got signed up. <laughs> so when all that was going on, essentially, that was when you exited the laser class, and pretty much started sailing with Glenn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what happened. And, uh, I did the laser nationals in 1985 when Glenn won, and uh, I'd won the youth worlds that year, and. Glenn had been offered a sailing to have a go at Olympic sailing. And he asked me if I'd go sail with him. So <clears throat> that's how it started. We were sort of buddies from the laser class. He had an opportunity and I ran with him. So for those of you who are not aware of who Glenn is, he's a bit of a legend. Uh, Glenn Charles, great guy, one of Andy and mine's dearest friend, unfortunately perished on the 98 uh, Hobart. So um, every now and then we give due deference and dot our hats to him. A bit more regularly recently. I feel. In the last few years, he's cropped up quite a lot, hasn't he? Yeah, uh, well, I think going back to, to, to Australia um, for the Dragon Worlds last year, I think that meant a lot to go and uh, to, to win. But I don't know why I dedicated the win to Glenn. I'm not sure why. Was it, um, it wasn't 20 years, was it? It might have been. It was it, 20 years the year before. And it it was, yeah, it was 20 years when we did the training, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 He, was, he was a big, big part of of British, you know, pro sailing though, wasn't he? I mean, he was he was part of nearly every single team that you guys were kind of involved with or racing against at the time, wasn't he? Uh, he was definitely a mover and a shaker, Glenn. I mean, he, he, he once he got his teeth into something, he, he would he would always carry through. Would would you know? Right, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it, and we're going to uh, we're going to execute. I mean, he obviously he won the Laser Nationals in '87. Is that right, Andy? It was either 85 or 86, I think. 86, maybe. And, 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 I mean, that was super hotly contested. I mean, the amount of people who are still sailing at the highest level from that laser group is amazing. Obviously, he did his first uh, Olympic trials with Andy and Rob? Rob Cruikshank, yeah. Rob, Rob Cruikshank in 88. Carried on from there with a campaign in 92. Then started sailing, if you like, internationally offshore with foreign teams. Um, sail for the Aussies in the Admirals Cup, um, trial with Innovation Caverna to go around the world, 
and then unfortunately his passing. He was in Australia coaching you, wasn't he, Andy? He was, yeah. Yeah, he was there. We had um, Sydney Olympic regatta before Christmas, and he was coaching us. And then we had the world qualifier, the Olympic qualifier, which was the drag, the um, Soling Worlds in Melbourne. And he was trying to decide what to do in between, whether to go home and go skiing, or anyway, he got an opportunity to do the Hobart race and decided to stay and do the Hobart race. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't a long planned thing. It was a last minute thing that he decided to do. Take um, goodbye to him. I went off to New Zealand for Christmas and was meeting him back in, in Melbourne. And I was flying back to Melbourne and it was all going off on the press and, uh, girlfriend I was with at the time was worrying about Glenn and I said well there's a lot of other people to worry about before I'd worry about Glenn he's he's he'll be all right he's a you know he's a good seaman and he's sensible and whatever anyway and we walked into the apartment where we were staying and they just announced it was Glenn on the yeah. news I walked in yeah not a good day no it was a, a massive loss for well obviously for his family for for, for world sailing and, and as as Sturfry says, we we all doff our caps to him, and, and and continue to do so. But Andy, going going back to your um campaign with Glim, um, walk us through what happened there. Well, we were given a sailing, and we didn't have any money. And I think my, I think my dad, got us a van. It was a one of the old uh, whopping newspaper delivery vans with roller shutter back door, and you know, when we got some cot bunks off. Uh, it's a perler, and we cut those down and put them in the roof and we put some other bunks in and a cooker and a radio and off we went to Europe in this van. And I think um, we had about three or four different people sell with us, but Rob McMillan was one of them. And I did the bow and I did the middle and we had various different people come and do it. And we did eight weeks and that, that was going from event to event and it was, it was a massive adventure. I mean, we were young. Massive adventure, and I don't know. I don't know that you could have those adventures anymore. You know, getting stuck, going over the Alps in the snow, and waiting for the snowplow to come round, and sliding towards the edge of the road, thinking you were going to go off it. <laughs> Terrified about going down the other side on the basis you couldn't drive up it, and arriving in Garda with icicles hanging off the bottom of the van, and having to sleep in the van with no insulation and no heater. It was. It was epic. Yeah, we had, we had we had generally had a good time. We weren't very good. <laughs> it was it was a a lesson in life living in the same twelve square feet as two other blokes for twenty four hours a day. That was that was fairly yeah. epic. Who who were your um, opposition for the British birth? I think Chris Law was about. Laurie was about. Rory, Rory Bowman Bowden. was about. Yeah. Steve Pyatt. Steve Pyatt. Did Krebin? Did Krebin have a go? Yeah, but. I think he, yes, he did. And he bailed out maybe before the trials, I think. But, it, you know, we were, we, were, we were right at the bottom of the pile. We, you know, we didn't have a particularly good kit. It was all quite old and we were trying to keep it all together and we were learning lots and lots and we were trying to go sailing. And I can remember trying to line up with Jochen Schumann and his crowd. And every time we lined up, we got about 30 seconds in the lineup before we got spat out the back. And... We used to have to position ourselves, make sure we were upwind of them when they were going downwind and wait for them to come upwind, join in for 30 seconds and then get spat out the back. It was very much, we were at the back of the fleet and took a long time, long time before we started getting any results. What a great bunch of 
people to be racing against, though, if you're going to learn learn your trade. I mean, that is an absolute who's who of of, of sailing there, just on the names you've mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I think you know, it was good, and it's, it's funny isn't it? because when I was a kid, particularly, I want to mention Laurie. When I was a kid, I was still an optimist, and Laurie was top of the four seventies and fireball. Uh, world champion, I think, or might have been second to Benji, I can't remember, but he was he was the sort of legend. And I was into sailing fireballs. I won the Fireball Junior National Championships in 1982, I think, when I was 14. Mm. And Laurie was 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 like the fireball sailor. Anyway, and I bumped into him at a with my dad when I was at a boat show. My old man stopped him, and I was really embarrassed. And he wanted to introduce his son to Laurie Smith because Laurie Smith was my hero. So when you, when you say you bumped into him, you were stalking him? I wasn't. I think my dad might. <laughs> he was going to introduce me. Anyway, so I went to that. And I can still remember it today. It's amazing, you know, like to win the Dragon World Championships in 2017, I had to take, I had to take Laurie out before the start. And, they were, you know, that, that is 30 years from having him as my hero to yeah. still racing against him head to head and beating him 30 years later and, it, and, it, and that's one of the great things about the dragon class which i'm sure we'll come to yeah andy, andy you don't do that justice it's it, he was your hero and going down the first run he was pleading with you to take it easy on him so he could finish second <laughs> yeah, i wasn't having any of that no no he fin- no prisoners yeah for those of you watching in black and white he finished third <laughs> So after after that campaign, what what were your thoughts? I mean, obviously, massive learning curve in a, in a first Olympic kind of trials campaign. What did you want to do? I mean, you obviously met these guys who are big boat legends too, like Law and and and, and obviously Laurie Smith. What did you go on to after that? Uh, I I wanted to. I think I decided I wanted to drive. I was I was I wasn't sure, but I wanted to have a go at driving at the Olympic level. And I got a campaign together um, for 92 and sailed with a couple of guys, Martin Burry and um, Chewy Craig. I don't know, I don't know what Craig, it's Craig Sherrill. Craig Sherrill. Yeah, Craig Sherrill. Gave it a go in the, as driving and we had, we had all sorts of problems. We got involved in the Petticrow saga when the boats were deemed illegal. It was difficult, um, you know, drilling holes in our boats. I'd, problems with cars breaking down. It was just an absolute disaster. I mean, I was trying to do too much. I was working full time and trying to campaign. The days were long and the, there was no spare time. and It all snowballed into a bit of a mess. But having said that, I was, I was lucky that for one reason or another, that Laurie asked me to be his tune-up crew in 92. So I did a lot of the training with him before the games and ended up in Barcelona anyway, working for Spanish television and involved in the game so it sort of turned out all right even though I didn't compete and Laurie went on to win a bronze so it was useful if not what I wanted it was a stepping stone in the right direction. So what were you doing at this stage because you were you were doing going down the Olympic campaign at that moment weren't you? Yeah so I started sailing with Glynn in 1990, I think, uh, Eurolimp 1990. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we were going well. Unfortunately, we lost the trials to Laurie by the smallest margin and there was no match racing trial um, to follow. 
so it's sort of at the time it left a bit of a sour taste in the mouth but you look back on it and you know it's just water under the bridge the worst part of that was the crash in oh yeah i'd forgotten that oh, yeah. i've never ever ever forgotten that. <laughs> what, what, what was this crash first race of the world's in cadiz so we're we're just uh we've we've gone to the starboard end sailed outside the starboard end done a line sight had a look up the course uh dipped down sailing the line you know kind of all standing up looking upwind and then on starboard, lit- on starboard and then literally we get boarded straight in the uh port side takes the bloody shroud out off the tracks um thinking oh my god who's this clown look under the boom and it's handy <laughs> wind and we'd gone up wind and a little test out wind we're coming down wind uh i'm not even sure we had the thing we didn't have a spinnaker did we I mean, no 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 and we were you know just having a water sailing back to the start and glenn must have been just behind the jib in a blind spot didn't see him at all until literally about a metre or two metres before we hit him. And when I went to bear away, the end of the tiller extension, caught the spinnaker sheet, and I had to double take, and that was just enough that the bow actually hit the front of the shroud shroud ramps, didn't it? And it literally yeah. wiped the shroud. Peeled it off. The back of the track. Oh, my God. Yeah. Best buddy. <laughs> yeah. First race of the world. I had forgotten. I hadn't forgotten it. I just eliminated it from my memory, Andy. Yeah, I lost the trials by next to nothing. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, Move on, Stretch. Ask, yeah, a fun, yeah. ask a fun question. That was a, that was a bit of a rubbish question, really. <laughs> <quite insight. laughs> 93. That's a good place to go. So, 93. Um, actually, you know what? Before we get to 93, guys, um, you were both doing the Ultra 30s, weren't you? Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, it's such a shame that there's not a bit more of that going on, I sort of feel, right now. I don't know what class could take it over. And I know we chatted about it briefly, I think, with Ian Walker. Um, But a bit like the J24s, it was just another travelling circus where for us nippers who weren't big enough or old enough to do that sort of thing, we just watched a bunch of you guys having incredible close racing, but also just having the most incredible fun. I mean, was was, was that one of the really fun classes to be in for the for your sort of early days I, for me it was one of the most fun sailing i think i've ever done it was absolutely fantastic and you know if i just imagine doing something like that today with modern mm. modern boats and technology it would be it would be incredible yeah it, it was fantastic and the boats were relatively bulletproof mm. and they didn't like clashing rigs too much but apart from that you could yeah. you could sail them pretty hard capsize them get them up Sturfry, can you explain an Ultra 30 for our younger listeners? <laughs> might um, not across them. So the, 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 the Ultra 30s were born um, the year after the Ultimate 30 yacht race in the States, which was open design. Basically, the only limit was um, 30 foot overall monohull. And then the Ultra 30 was taken off of a boat called Flyer, which was a Rob Humphreys design. I'm not sure if it won, but it, it certainly got close to winning in the U.S., and they moulded, I think, six or seven boats, attracted some sponsorship, uh, and the circuit was born in 1990. We used to sail with eight people, I think. I think it was eight. And in its formative years, we were hiking, and then in 96, uh, we went to trapezes. So 
it was good fun. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was ahead of its time in terms of being stadium racing, a little bit ahead of its time in terms of the asymmetrics. You know, they were like um, overgrown skiffs. Power to weight wasn't anything like a skiff, but they were difficult to sail. If uh, if you didn't keep the boat under the rig, uh, you'd be in the tide. Um, and we travelled around uh, weird and wonderful places like Hartlepool, Dundee, Belfast, Cowes, Portsmouth. What was the one in Glasgow on that pond? Only about 800 Oh, meters. Strathclyde, yeah. Strathclyde, yeah, yeah, Strathclyde on the rowing lake, yeah. yeah. Time. we were in three minutes, weren't we, or something? Good fun. Three minutes of that. So who who funded those? Were those privately kind of operated teams? Or um, I mean, I remember sponsorship. I remember seeing some of the TV shows and seeing the various sponsors. But were there individuals backing it? Backing uh, it? I would say the fleet was 50-50. I mean, the first year I did it, I sailed with, uh, with Laurie on Games Workshop, which was um, Ian Livingston, who was the Games Workshop, the figurines and war games uh, creator so he it was a sponsored boat but you know it was the owner of the company um and then dbs financial services which was uh, purely a sponsorship uh obviously frontier came in the voxel team came in that was purely sponsorship uh dick hickton who andy sailed for that was kind of personal money with a sponsorship hint was it Barbary, wasn't it? it was his he was property developer barbary house properties yeah but it was a mix of personal and sponsorship and then um, Eddie had Hoya, which were a lens manufacturer, you know, a proper sponsorship deal. Uh, and then latterly I sailed uh, with Glynn and we sailed uh, United Airlines, which was, you know, a sponsorship deal. And, and for all of um, Sail GP's chat and the Extreme Series chat, Ultra 30s was the first stadium racing, wasn't it? It was where, you know, someone was saying, let's bring the boats close to shore. Let's have wipeouts and fun for, for the crowd. And it, it really set, you know, set the scene, didn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think, to be honest, to me, the first stadium racing is the skiffs. Yeah, in, you're right, actually. In, yeah. in, in Sydney, um, you know, the Manly Ferry, the betting yeah. supposedly goes on and maybe does go on, maybe doesn't go on. But, you know, that, that for me was stadium racing um, yeah. in the first instance. And then the ultimate yacht race and the uh, ultras carried that on. So, Andy, what happened in 93? What, what, what was the good news piece? <laughs> 93 was, was the Admiral's Cup. And that's, and that's really when we sort of first sailed together, wasn't it? And Glenn, Glenn was, again, hinge, hinge pin in that, where Graham Walker and Peter Morty, Hall, Morty, yeah. Morty basically gave a load of youngsters a one-tonner to learn to sail in and, and uh, do the Admiral's Cup as part of the team. And... That was where stir from myself, Glenn, Andy Hemmings, Richie Faulkner, Ado, Boons, Ado, Smiley, Miles, I'm in. Miles, I'm in. And we had two grown-ups. Unfortunately, would you believe another grown-up who has passed away? Um, God rest his soul. Ed Dubois navigated for us, and then Ed Danby um, sat in the middle, did the pit, and shouted at us. I mean, that is a great lineup of people on a boat. You know, going back to Andy's thing about people make fleets. That's a hell of a crew to um, to go and uh, cut your spurs in the big boat or bigger boat world, isn't it? We had we had such a good time. As well. I think it was, what was it about six six or seven weeks of sailing? Yeah, I, I I think the boat obviously the boat was the original Port Pendennis, um, the Dubois boat from '91, 
and it had been sold to Turkey um, and then it got chartered back. And I'd say we took it over, what do you reckon, first week in June? Yeah, yeah, was... yeah it, was, it was probably eight and a half, eight, eight and a half, I, ten, ten weeks to the end of the fastener we had with the boat. Yeah, and it was just just such a fantastic adventure and you know, working, it was exciting. It was something new, something big, hitting the scene, out with the big boys. I remember, you know, desperately getting involved in sticking sight lines on the boat and just at everything, just involved way beyond anything I'd been involved with before. And, uh, and Andy, were you steering it? Were you steering the boat? No, I, I, I did the main sheet inshore. And I was one of the drivers offshore, main sh- trimmer driver offshore. Um, and I did the main sheet. Glenn was primarily driving. Right. Um, and then him, then Glenn, Hado and I did most of the driving. So, Stofro, what were you up to? Because, I mean, there's an awful lot of good trimmers on that boat. <laughs> uh, I, I trimmed downwind. Um, I think, I'm not sure. I think Richie Faulkner trimmed upwind on, yeah. on the port side, so yeah. on starboard tap. And Andy trimmed when we were on port so he trimmed on the starboard side and I trimmed downwind uh Ed Danby did the pit Smiley did kind of mast mid bow uh and Simon Fairman spoons did the bow uh, and um so if you're grown-ups with Dubois and Danby I just tried to think what you lot got up to at night <laughs> yeah it was a, yeah it was pretty loose <laughs> some, well, some, some of my favorite sailing memories from, from that campaign. And one of them was going out on the channel race with Ed Dubois navigating. And we start the race and he, we, we're going out through the Hearst Narrows and it's just starting to get a bit bumpy and a bit wet. And he, uh, he says, I forgot my oilskins. And he's literally, he's wearing a, he's wearing a, like a, a cotton shirt and some chinos and some docksiders. And we're going out and he's, He's like, I forgot my oilskins. I forgot everything. That's it. That's, he did the whole race, the channel race, it's, wearing chinos and a cotton shirt and his dogs. <laughs> he's a tough old boy, I can tell you that. And, yeah. and the reason he'd forgotten everything was obviously in the first inshore race that we talked about with um, Luke Patience when Jameson put it up the rocks. Yeah. Um, we hit the bricks as well. And there was a, yeah, there was a big insurance uh, for Rory. Um, whether we could sell, whether we couldn't sell. Um, and poor old Ed, he'd literally just come out of a, was it a, a hearing or, and he, we picked him off of the Island Sailing Club pontoon, I think. Yeah, well, they literally, they, they agreed to let us sail on the basis that we ins- they inspected the boat every, every morning. The boat was inspected by an assessor every morning before we went sailing. Ed was involved as a designer and whatever, he was involved in that negotiation to get us going out. So it was, it was busy. Anyway, and that, and that transpired into an interesting fast night, didn't it? Head was terrified of anybody being down below and the boat keel falling off, having given it a good smack on the... Well, gen- gen- genuinely, I think the only person who went down below and slept was uh, Captain Fieldmouse. Now, Rory's going to say, who the hell is Captain Fieldmouse? But that's what we used to call Ado. <laughs> Why did you call him Captain Phil? Because he used to poke his head out of a hatch looking like a little vole coming out from under the riverbank. <laughs> and he became known as Captain Fieldmouse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm impressed he's brave enough to go down below because I certainly wouldn't have. So I'm intrigued, guys, at this stage. Were, were you 
professional paid sailors then or were you um learning your trade and just really chuffed to be getting an admiral's cup boat to play with by that stage well i was i was working full time but was very very lucky in that i'd just come off the back of the olympic trials and been sponsored by my work and they were happy to allow me to go sailing and i think i think well i'm pretty certain morty gave me an envelope of cash and i think it was a I think it was 850 quid for the, for the, for the sort of, you know, from the start of sailing to the end of the uh, faucet. It's a solid 10 weeks. Pay yeah, yeah. But we, I mean, to be honest, we lived for nothing. You know, we had a bet with Bill Edgerton because it was the top two boats in your teams that scored. And the way that the, Andy will know whether it was time on time or time on distance, but everyone thought that the one tonners were going to be penalised um, and that the big boats would score. Uh, anyway, he said, every time you score for the team, I will buy you a jug of rum and coke. Is that right, Andy? Yes, yeah. And we got to Plymouth and there was like uh, seven jugs of rum and coke just lined up for us. So that was the we starter. Think. Yeah. Think. I think he got into trouble at the RYA on his credit card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we'd find Walker doing that on his RYA credit card, would we? No, God, no. No, <laughs> no. Not Coach Walks. Well, the, the lovely thing about that, that was... Uh, that the, you know, we were the one-tonner, we were the, the kids on the small boat, and the rest of the team were there to greet us on the way in. Thus ensued a massive knees-up. And I still remember at the Trust House 40, what it says in the um, Night Porter's book, it says, uh, Messrs Rawlings, Morton and Newnham retired at 2.38. Slightly the worse for wear. So we, and we finished, I reckon we finished, what time, Andy? 8.30 in the morning? Yeah. 8.30 in the morning, and they greeted us, and they were still going at, um, well, they weren't still going at 2.38, because they'd packed in, but 2.30 they were still going. Good lads. So, Andy, after you'd, um, actually, well, how did you guys do in that, in that, that Admiral's Cup in the end? Uh, I think we were third one-tonner. I mean, <laughs> slight, yeah, uh, uh, Brava should have won the one-ton class, but they dropped their rig on the last inshore, and Italy should have won the Admiral's Cup, but La Rouge... Uh, dropped their rig on the fast net. Um, and then the Aussies should have won the fast net. Uh, but we, we rolled their one-tonner, a boat called Nippon, uh, with Glen Burke skippering. Uh, we rolled them, what, in the last 15 miles? After a, after, I mean, it, it was, we fought with them for 12 hours. Every wave was, you know, they were ahead, we were ahead, that kind of surfing. We managed to roll them. Uh, I actually Sid was on there, wasn't he? Sid was yeah. with, with Berkey, and that cost them the Admiral's Cup, and the Germans won. So. Could you just explain, guys, Andy, for our listeners, because you know, uh, terminology for boats has probably slightly changed now. Um, two ton, one ton. What does all that mean to people? I mean, how has that all worked out? So they were they were rating they were rating bands, and when you sailed a one ton, you were effectively level rated. I think you, you, you had to the rating had to be below a certain number and obviously it was an advantage to be on that number and then you raced level and they were IOR classes there was a quarter tonner half tonner three quarter tonner one tonner two tonner and a 50 footer and there was a, probably a mini tonner at the back yep. it was just a set of rules for various different sized boats and the one tonners by the time that they sort of expired were around 40 feet. Two tonners were around 44, 45 feet. 
and then the 50 footers were 50 foot. So there were three good sized boats. It was a great makeup, wasn't it? It's a shame the boats were so slow, but other, apart from that, they were they were great boats to sail, difficult to sail, spinnaker poles, didn't go very fast, rolled like a pig, <laughs> anvil. Compared to the modern day boats, they uh, they were physically physically difficult to sail. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a lot of apparent wind sailing, was there? No, no. Well, you got you managed to nail, um, you know, the latter part of the Admiral's Cup, where it was still an epic regatta to be involved with, and you know, as, as you said, the Australians, the French, the English teams, there, there is, the world was sailing against each other there. Um, you know, with each team having uh, three boats sailing on it. I mean, what an epic time to be yacht racing, especially when you were younger and learning your ropes. Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, one of my, my mum and dad would always trip it out as a bit of a, we knew you were slightly screwed in the head from a young age. I used to get in a rubber dinghy if we were moored up in Groves and Guttridge visitors area and I would paddle around the, all the Admiral's Cup boats counting the winches. This is in the early to mid 70s. And I was just besotted with the deck layouts and the winches on all these boats. And further to that, I don't know if you can remember this stretch, was the, uh, the scoreboard, the manual scoreboard. Yeah. In, in the marina at Cowes, um, just phenomenal. You know, the, the, all the teams uh, in 85, I think there were 17 teams. So it was a, you know, the, the, the um, poor old guy putting the names in, the flags in, the points in, the protests. Unbelievable. And then my last sort of formative Admiral's Cup memory was the Brazilian team. I think it was 79 because I was doing Scows Week in Yarmouth, which coincides with Cowes Week, but it's only for Scows. <laughs> And for those of you who don't know what a scow is, it's a terrible little sort of clinker, clinker clunker, uh, about 12 feet long, uh, gunter rigged. It's not like the beautiful scows um, in the US. And we'd gone up to watch uh, the Admiral's Cup boats finishing on the green because it was too windy for us to sail. And then we went to the beer tent just to see what was happening as sort of, you know, 11, 12 year olds or whatever. And I just stood there open mouth because it was about six o'clock in the evening and the Brazilian team had a bicycle and they would ride as fast as they could down the pontoon, off the end of the pontoon. The guy would go in the tide, and the bicycle had a piece of string on it. They would pull it back out, and then someone else would have a go. I thought, wow, it's Admiral's Cup. That's for me. <laughs> With all those nations, was New Zealand featuring big time then, or were they not up there with, you, with the top nations at that stage? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, 83, they had top-scoring individual boats, Swazzle Bubble. Um, and then 85, obviously, they hit it hard when they had the three one-tonners with all the same paint jobs. Do you remember that? Was that the Canterbury's of this? Oh, time? here we go, Stretch. Come on. Go to your, go to your mind palace. Um, Canterbury. Comanche Raider. No. Shut no. up, you stupid boy. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, Comanche Raider was a Kiwi boat, but that was from 83, and it used to be called Inca, and then it went to Wales and became Comanche Raider. But um, the Kiwi team in 85 was Exodore, Epic, and Canterbury. Oh, well, one out of three is all right. They're pretty good. Um, can I just say, Andy, how good is Sturfrey's memory? It just absolutely staggers me how he can remember every race, every boat, every person. I mean, it's, his recall is extraordinary. His knowledge of boats is, is incredible. And even boats that, why would you want to know anything about them? I can remember sailing in a sail and there was some 30-foot cruising tub. 
And Simon says, oh, that's a so-and-so, 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 blah, 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 blah. And we're like, how, how would you know that? So yeah. we go up and say that to him and ask him. <laughs> and he says, yeah, it is. And Slayer says, is the, is the galley on the port side or the starboard side of that? Because they only made three with the port, with the galley on the port. <laughs> it was, like, we called him on it and he was right. It was, and I've never called him again. Better lucky than good, Andy. <laughs> I'm not sure what use it is to you, Simon, but it's very hey, hey, it's coming to the fore at the moment. We're involved yeah, in a exactly. quiz, a, we're involved in a quiz stretch um, with the Dragon class where you go on with your buddy um, and you hold up your answers in front of the Zoom screen or whatever. And uh, I've been going all right on sport, not so good on the uh, food and drink round. general knowledge, okay. But yeah, I'm hoping that there's a few Admiral's Cup questions in the final. <laughs> all right, between us. So you guys are in the final then? Oh, yeah. yeah. Top qualifiers. I mean, forget Admiral's Cup and Olympics. You're in the final of the Dragon lockdown quiz. Does it get any better? Well, hopefully we're going to win a spinnaker. <laughs> Andy, going, going on from, from the Admiral's Cup, you obviously switched back into Olympic mode um, in the hope of qualifying for Savannah, didn't you? For 96. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and there was a, you know, a change in the games, and match racing became uh, part of the part of the Olympic program. Um, appealed to me a lot. I'd been very successful with university, with team racing, and then match racing, school and university, uh, doing team racing and match racing, and the national match racing in the UK that was a, you know, quite a big thing at the time. Got some money. James Capel, I think, were the first people to do it when they were doing that crew search thing, and yeah. and the match racing happened, and then BT sponsored it, and it was it was something anyway. And I, and I was I did well at it. I don't know quite why I did well at it, but probably just from team racing days from being at school when I was fourteen, I guess it became an Olympic thing. And I teamed up with Ado and Barry Parkin, and Barry Parkin was always a difficult guy to beat in the match racing and there was one year that he got knocked out in the round and I hadn't got a crew and I decided to do it so I rang him up and said could I borrow his crew and he said well I'll come and sail with him and we went and did it and um, we won every race I think we had to beat Ado in semi I think anyway won. we literally won every race so there was a fleet race and everything we won everything and then we decided after that we'd have a go at Olympics and we got together with Ado and that was a successful four years, really. Not quite successful enough, but a successful quad. Obviously, you were absolutely at the, at the top of your game, and, and, and very sadly, you, you came fourth, which yeah. is still a huge, massive achievement for the rest of us mortals, but for you, incredibly competitive sailors, I'm sure it's very disappointing. Yeah, and I, I, I guess at the time, we wouldn't, you know, if somebody said you were going to come fourth, I would have... He said, wow, really, we're going to do that well. But actually, looking back, we should have done better. And that was, that's the disappointing thing. We had the, we had the ability to do better, and we didn't. And the opportunity was there to win a medal and slipped through our fingers. So how do you sort of pick yourself up after an Olympics where you worked so hard for you know, a hugely long stint? Um, or did you just kind of move on and just try and find the next thing? So the, so the 96 programme was, was a big event in my life in a lot of ways because I... I was a civil engineer I, when we did the 90, 93 Admiral's Cup. I think I was just out of university and I don't think I'd actually started work. Or if I had, I'd only just started. And then 
oh, I must have been just, I must have been at work, but only just. And then I actually packed in my job to pursue the Olympics. So I packed him in a civil engineer so I could commit to the time. And then coming forth in Atlanta, I decided to have another go for Sydney and didn't go back to work uh, and decided to do four years campaigning for Sydney. And that and that and that's really what set me off where I am now. I've never been back. Ever. I've continued to sail ever since. So that was a, that was a big change in my life plan, packing in a job and that had a, had a career path and qualifications and everything to go sailing. Well, it's been a, a massively successful decision to make, really, when you, I mean, I hope when you look at what you've achieved so far in your career, it's been, it's, there's been a huge number of highs and, and you've managed to have a, a very successful career. Yeah, um, I mean, fortunately, there are some good highs, but I, I mean, I, I struggle that we didn't win a medal. I, uh, mm. You know, it's difficult to, to put that one to bed and it's something that I wrestled with for a long time and felt massively disappointed with but there are only three medalists per class per four-year quad and not everybody's going to win not everybody's going to win one even if they're good enough to win them they need a bit more than being good enough and you know fortunately I've gone on to do other stuff and I'm very proud of all those things that we have done I think what Andy says is is so salient in terms of yachting though for instance rowing athletics you know the time you can run. So if your preparation is good and you are free of um, any health problems, you, you pretty much know how you should do. With yachting, you know, there, there's so many uh, areas of uncertainty, the weather, how other people are going to behave, what happens to you on the race course, um, it, you know, if you get mixed up with someone. It, it's, it all has to come together over you know, a 10 race series or whatever it is. And as Andy says, you do need a little bit of luck. Although saying that, there are some people who keep coming back and appear to be perennially lucky. So um, it goes back to what I think it was Arnold Palmer said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Yeah. If, you're, if you're good enough not to require any luck, then you are very, very, very good. Yeah. And there are a few of those people amongst us, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a pretty rare... It's a pretty rare human being, though, isn't it? When you really look at it, you know those those um, those mul- multiple winners, whether it be the Olympics or whether it be the, the Tiger Woods of this world or the Michael Jordans, they are they're very few and far between. <laughs> yeah, I know. We all aspire to be like them, but in some respects, uh, you know, maybe we don't put in as much effort as some of those people are putting in. I think one of the things that's so interesting, I think, about um, the sailing world is, is you know, Stefra, you chatted about rowers, for example, and, and, and let's say sprinters. It's an incredible thing that you guys have got that you can trial for the Olympics, go to the Olympics. But then it's, it's an extraordinary sport where 20 years later, you can still be sailing at the absolute highest level, which you two have proven by winning the Dragon Worlds last year. I mean, it's a... It's a wonderful sport that you are involved in, that you can still be doing that. Yes. I mean, that, that, you're right. It's a wonderful sport. and We're very, very lucky. You know, top level sport, for instance, now in rugby union, you're pretty much done by the time you're 30 because of the uh, physicality of the game. Uh, golf, maybe you would have a, a slightly, uh, uh, be able to play to a slightly older age. I mean, the tennis guys now are burned out by 28, 30. Uh, yachting is, it, it's, it's pretty unique in that respect. 
I always look at Bjorn Borg, you know, as a name that's indelibly etched in our minds. And he was retired by 26. <laughs> and you think how young he was to just be gone like that and finished. <laughs> but, I, I, well, I presume he retired because he thought he'd done enough. I think he retired because he saw McEnroe looming on the, on the yeah. horizon of, yeah. um, everywhere he went, by all accounts. So you guys both then swung in, you know, from around that Sydney Olympics time was when the Team GBR was being put together, wasn't it? Uh, yes, although we both had pretty much, well, I had signed up. I think Andy had an offer to go and do the Volvo. Yeah, yeah News Corp for me and you were with them. Um, Tyco. Tyco. I mean, that's very foolish. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it was, it, it, was a, it, was, it was a bit of a bum situation because it's offshore... It's, it's not my passion, but I would have liked to have done it and I felt I could have contributed. But then the offer to go and do the cup and be fully involved with the sale programme and sell with essentially some very, very good mates uh, meant that I chose that. Uh, Andy, you, you'd signed up with News Corp, had you? I hadn't. I'd, done, I'd been joined them for six or, six or seven weeks and was discussing potentially signing up with them for the race. Jez, Jez Fanston and I go back a long way which is how I got involved in the first place I was it's, it's one of my regrets I think of my career is I, I never did a Volvo never did a Ram or Whitbread or a Volvo race and probably my biggest regret was getting an invitation from uh, Dalton when he was Merrick Cup to go and sail with them and I turned it down because I was focusing on Olympic sailing and looking back on the basis I didn't win a medal that would have probably been a good idea to have joined that that program and had that experience and you know I think it's a an area that I've not you know not maybe not finished and unlikely to finish now at 53 I'm not going to go and do a round the world race you look older Andy thanks <laughs> <laughs> he's just saying that Andy yeah well <laughs> Stoffro's got all carried away now because he's doing so much running. He's become this kind of super fit triathlete almost during this lockdown period. I'll try. I'll try anything, mate. <laughs> um, so, guys, I mean that that America's Cup, um, well, that America's Cup campaign, as, as Stoffro said, basically was a, a bunch of your great friends and a hugely talented bunch of friends as well. And was that was that um, a very special time? Yes, without doubt. Um, it really galls me, though, that if we had the chance to go and do it again with the budget that we had, how differently we would do things. Mm. Was, that, was that going all, again back to what Hamish Pepper was saying last week um, when he was saying that, you know, Russell Coots and, and Brad Butterworth would say at Team New Zealand in the early days, you know, don't build us a crazy fast boat or anything like that. Just build us a boat that allows us to compete. And perhaps you guys didn't quite get that opportunity, do you think? Uh, well, 100%. I mean, the boat didn't balance. We were, competitive. We were a competitive team sailing around in the, Japanese, in the old boats with the Japanese boats, and we never really competed in our boats, was the bottom line. Isn't it? So, for instance, the boat was so out of whack, we ended up taking rake out of the rig, um, when what we should have done, uh, we should have just had some, you know, pretty big meetings and said, boat's going in the shed for six weeks. Um, everyone take two weeks off. Um, keep yourselves fit. Uh, we'll come back and we'll do some match racing training in the Etchells and then we'll we'll pull the boats out of the shed and we'll we'll be in a better place. Unfortunately, um, we didn't do that. A 
it brings us on to the current America's Cup, which we're now in proper countdown. I, I love listening to you guys talking about the team experiences, the if, if onlys or, or what, what ifs um, of design and choices that you make for America's Cup. Andy, we probably asked most of our guys on this, and, and I'm not sure how tuned you are into the current um, America's Cup campaigns. What are your thoughts on the current edition of the America's Cup and the boats they're sailing in? Yeah, I, I have mixed, mixed emotions. You know, I, it is what it is now, and that's, and that's it, that's fact. And I think the technology is amazing. The spectacle is amazing. Interesting, but am I, am I really into it? Not at all. I, you know, I think it's lost. The event's lost some of its charm and passion for me. And I, you know, I, I think it was, it was a better cup in monohulls, match racing, whatever. But then I'm, I'm old and maybe the young think this is a lot better. But I do see the spectacle and I think the technology is amazing and the extra dimensions and all the development is, is fascinating and intriguing. But the racing, I'm not sure. And I remember the first cup and everybody saying how it was going to be this fantastic event. And the only thing that made it a fantastic event was the fact that the final was close and there was an amazing comeback. The Louis Vuitton was as dull as dishwater and it didn't matter that anybody was doing 35 to 50 knots. It was just boring. It was only exciting when it was racing. Well, I think it would have been just as exciting in 80 to 100 foot monoholes and the racing was tight because that's what makes it interesting is good racing. And if the racing's not good, then I think it will lose interest. Being edition one of the new type of boats, are we going to see close racing or are we going to see massive variations? I have no idea. You know, it's, uh, that's the problem, isn't it? It's, it's, it's so new and moving so quickly. I, th- I think it I think it will be better than it was in 2013, you know, because then, then there was the do we foil, do we not foil? Uh, the Kiwis are foiling, or oh, crikey, we've all got to try and foil. So then there was massive discrepancies in the, in the boat speeds. I think there will be differences. I don't think they'll be ridiculously large, but the problem is when you're going 40 knots, you've only got to be going two knots slower for 10 seconds it's quite a long way. I think it was Pepsi was alluding to the fact that your touchdowns will be hypercritical yeah. and the teams will reduce foil size as the event goes on. And the guys who can reduce the foil size and stay uh, in flight for a whole lap will make the biggest gains. I don't know why we're qualified to talk about it, Stretch. We know nothing. <laughs> well, I really know nothing. So I just like asking these questions and I believe everything you say. So it's great. For me, that's the interesting bit is that I don't know anything and, I, and everything that I hear, I learn. And, I, and, I, and that is quite interesting. Have you got that 10 grand you owe me, Stretch? <laughs> if you believe everything I say. Come on, matey. Well, it could be from when, we're, you know, from when I was first sailing with you. I don't remember much from those years. So if I, did, <laughs> I, I really apologise. Um, what you two do know an awful lot about is sailing small keelboats extremely well. You've put together some wonderful campaigns. You've, you've sailed together winning the actual worlds and the dragon worlds, the, the dragons on multiple occasions. So, Andy, what is your favourite small boat to race? <laughs> well, small, anything one design is, is, uh, is, I love. I love that one design, but... Clearly, there seems to be a, a synergy with the actuals and the Dragons. Three-man keelboat seems to be a sweet spot for me and Simon, and together particularly. And I don't know why, just, I mean, I've been doing it since 1986, I guess, with Glyn when we started in the Solings, and here we are doing something very similar on the road, and it's, yeah, I've just, I don't know quite why. I, I enjoy it. It's great racing. Seem to be good at it, so I want to do more of it. Steph, what are your thoughts? How come you guys have managed to 
to more recently in the Dragons, really, really put together an unprecedented number of world championships back to back, but also back in the actuals. You know, what, what, what made you guys a bit special? Well, I think composition of skills. Uh, I mean, Andy brings an engineering background. He's very diligent on setup in terms of the boat prep. He's very much leave nothing to chance, which I sign up to as well. I think mental fortitude, I would say for the third person who comes to sail with us, it's not always a bed of roses. But I would say that also we are uh, quite prepared to bark at each other, at each other. Sorry. So it's, you know, it's, you know, it's a a relatively harsh environment, but we we sign up to that. And then on the flip side of that is uh, we have great fun. It's, you know, If you're going to sail a three-man keelboat, you've got to have a good empathy with the guys you're going to sail with because you're going to go and prep the boat, sail the boat, race the boat. You're going to go ashore. Uh, however you've sailed, you're going to have a beer together. You're going to go and dine in the evenings. You know, it's a relatively tight environment, so you've got to uh, get on with the guys that you're sailing with. It's simple as well, isn't it? I mean, that appeals to me, but it's very simple. It's all manageable. There's no excuses. You know, the budget's not big. The team's not big. The it's only three personalities. The boat's easy to put together and to do all the jobs and the work. And like it's, it's all doable. So there are no excuses. And it's simple. And it, it rewards attention to detail and doing things well. Well, I'm, I'm interested in the dynamic between the two of you because you're both pretty strong characters. And as you say, pre- perfectly prepared to bark at each other. How, how, do you, um, how, do you, how do you divide leadership? on a small boat like that, when you've got two, in particular, two guys who are normally incredibly experienced, like the two of you? Well, I think, I mean, I've, I've obviously, we have sailed a lot together and I've sailed with a lot of other people, but the one thing that I think we have really well nailed down is trust. So we, we can be sailing upwind. And if I say to Andy, tacking in three, two, one, and he will put the helm down. It's based on maybe the conversation that's been going on prior to that. So he has the knowledge, you know, prior to, but also in, in the flip side of that, I might be, you know, saying, ah, oh, I'm thinking about going across. And then Andy will caveat that by asking two or three really, really pertinent questions, making me sort of confirm my judgment. So it's a, it's a really good trusting relationship. There's good dialogue between the two of us when we sat. And, and I, like, and when I've coached, I coached the Inglings, the girls, and one of the things that I've signed up to is, you don't really make decisions; they evolve. And by the time the decision has to be made, it's normally pretty obvious what that decision is. Have you, if you've been talking about the right things going into it, and that's I think that's where Simon and I are quite good and do have a lot of trust. And when he says something, I know what it means, and when I say something, he knows what. He knows what that means, and it, the triggers are all there. So there's a lot of information moving about between us without a huge amount of dialogue on the water. It's, uh, you know, I think that's, that is one of the keys. And, and we've also, I think the success has also improved the trust, right? So, you know, we, if one of us makes a decision, we, we get on with it, and then we talk about it afterwards. If it goes wrong, it's easy to talk about it with hindsight because we've had enough decisions go right that the odd ones that go wrong aren't really a big issue. Sometimes they aren't. I think uh, the other thing which is key is that we're relatively good at, if we make a mistake, trying our damnedest to make sure it never happens again. So I think we isolated just prior to Perth in the Dragons that our downwind strategy was was a little bit flawed and we we worked really hard because 
the way we sail the boat is the same as many people sail the dragon or the etchels now in that i'll do the bow upwind um and then i'll trim downwind so my eyes downwind are not as as good as uh, they are upwind um so we we had to bring on ali uh, our uh, guy who did the bow downwind the middle upwind we, we had to you know build his confidence um and there was nothing wrong with what he was seeing or, or what he was saying but we had to give him the empower him to if he if he felt strongly about something to say it and, and thankfully we addressed that prior to perth and you know we dropped the ball i think on one run out of i don't know 20 so you know we, we were prepared to address our mistakes and do something about it so move, moving on with the dragons is there going to be a world championships this year no, the, the Dragon Worlds is every other year. That's every so, other year. That's, it's one of the crazy, you know, I mean, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's something, you know, specific to the class. You know, it, it's a crazy thing that we're very, very lucky that the, the coronavirus hasn't fallen on a, on a world year. It is a Europeans year, and, but they're going to postpone the Europeans to next year. So next year will be a Europeans and a Worlds in the same year, which is, hasn't happened for quite a while. And, th- and this comes back to Stirfry's worry for... I mean, the biggest worry for pro yachting is the now, because none of you guys are getting to go sailing. And it's deep, you know, deeply worrying both financially and also because you just want to be, be racing. But um, next year is going to be an extraordinary um, juggling of, of uh, calendars for, for all of you pro sailors, isn't it? Well, I think, I, th- I think it's funny you should say pro sailors. I just think for every sailor because there are only 365 days in the year so your time is limited whoever you are the you're going to have to decide what you want to do um and that might be based on loyalty it might be based on money it might be based on which yacht club has been good to you who your crew is what your kids want to do i think very very unfortunate there'll be a lot of sailors who aren't able to do all of the events over a two-year period which they had planned to do just because this year has been um destroyed yeah Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's hugely tough times, guys, now, now for, for you and, and your families and everything. But looking back over the last 20 years, do you think you've been in a, in a do you think pro sailing's had a particularly good run of it for you and for your careers as professionals? I, I mean, I think, I think I've been fantastically lucky to be born when I was born and do everything I've done yeah. all the way through, you know, like being in the youth squad at with Jim Saltonstall to all the professional sailing and the Etchells and the Dragons now and the America's Cup, just think we've been hugely fortunate. However, at the time, I can remember thinking that just as I was you know, getting into sailing, is all the pro side of the sport was dying big time and all this uh, owner-driver and amateur stuff was coming in. And it, it was, I think it's pretty tough, you know, unless you're a really good pro, it's difficult, you know, the, the middle ground guys are a struggle because if they're, not good enough to get the lead roles. They're difficult to get on the boats because you need so many amateurs. And actually, the amateurs are the, are the limiting factor really now. Trying to, if you get something that's successful, trying to, trying to get good amateurs, get a lot of good amateurs who've got the time and the commitment to do it is actually really quite difficult. Yeah. And uh, I, I feel fortunate that I've, I've always managed just to stay sort of you know, buoyant and the professional side of it and always managed to get jobs but there are you know there's quite a lot of people who have been deemed to be professional by their ISAF coding which has basically meant they haven't really been able to go sailing because they're not really good enough to be pros leading from the front but they're you know they would be good amateurs or very good amateurs if they were amateur but they've been deemed to be professional and therefore 
struggle to go and do the racing that they really want to do, and, which is a shame. I think you know they're probably the most important people in the sport, where they're enthusiastic about sailing and they work within the industry, and then been penalised and can't go sailing. Yeah. It's Cat two thing that they got rid of, which and Andy knows my view. Stretch, I, I I think they dropped the ball probably six seven years ago when there were a lot of questions being asked and people being pulled up on whether they were pros, were they weren't pros, whether they were students, whether they received coaching, and it just looked as though we needed say five categories, um, and you would have like a university point scoring system. So, for instance, in a far forty, you say, I would like to, you know, it's going to be twenty five points on the boat. If you've done the America's Cup, if you've been to the Olympics in the last two cycles, you will be a five-pointer. So pro below that will be a four-pointer. Three is if you work in the industry. Two is uh, a weekend warrior. And one is someone who is physically being taken along just to make up the numbers. Um, so it's a simple handicap system almost for each yeah. team. Really. Yeah. Expand it, expand it rather than narrow it down to pros, you know, pro and am. Actually, there needs to be... The middle ground is actually needs a lot more definition. And at the top of the game, people know if you've been to the games or been to the to do a, to do an America's Cup or, for instance, a Volvo. Um, it's quite well defined. Um, as the moment at the moment, whether you're a professional or not a professional, uh, you can sail 200 days a year and be an Italian gardener, but you're an amateur. I mean, that's slightly marginal. And and you shouldn't legislate against somebody that wants to pay his mate half a million quid a year who can't sail to go sailing with him. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, that, and that's effectively... Who's going to pay you that? <laughs> that's, the, that's the ridiculous thing is, is if an owner paid his gardener to go sailing with him, he would be one of the cat three places. But I didn't know anything about sailing. I, you know, you shouldn't be legislating against what people want to spend their money on. Fair point, well made. So the future for, for young pros, how do you guys see it? You know, is there space for enough? professionals out there to make a living do you think um, for the next 20 years what, what are your thoughts on on the future for professional sailing I, I think there's 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 enough classes and enough well there was enough classes and there was enough sailing going on prior to the mm. covid outbreak the handing of the baton i think is a natural progression in that the cup has changed so therefore the classes that will fill the gap under the cup over the next six seven ten years i think will naturally change there's definitely less places though isn't there? like you know when when we were young when we were doing the admiral's cup there were heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps of people not being paid very much but there were a lot of people professional sailing and there was the you know the whitbread race and the admiral's cup and big numbers of boats where now like the america's cup has got three or four sailors on board and then the rest of them are not even four athletes yeah. Uh, just athletes yeah they're just you know physical physically impressive but not necessarily sailors so that's that's changed and i think i think that the bottom end is that people when, when we were olympic sailing we couldn't afford to go olympic sailing 300 days a year and so therefore we had to do other sailing as well so our, i think we developed more broadly than you see the youngsters developing now youngsters are so refined in their lasers for 70s 49ers they don't do any other sailing and I think it's quite a big step regardless of whether they win a medal or not unless somebody actually you know puts them under their arm and takes them with them it's a big step for them to leave Olympic sailing and go big boat professional sailing because they don't actually have any skills to take with them in the respect because the professional sailors that, that we are is your coaching guiding consulting 
you know, the, the, the actual sailing bit is a very small part of the skill set that we bring. And how do those young guys who coming out of Olympic sailing and small one design sailing transfer through the ranks? It's, it's actually quite difficult. And it, you can see it must be difficult because if you look at the TP52s, I think the average crew age now is like 48 years old or something. Simon might know a bit more than, better than me, but it's, it's, it's old. If you'd gone back 20 years, there's no way that 50, 50, 60 year olds would still be holding on to strong positions in the top teams where now they are. And I think that's because the young guys aren't coming along and kicking their butts. Is it, is it also because a lot, there uh, seem to be a lot, a lot of America's Cup sailors who are very, well, they're lucky enough, but some, some of the cream of the crop are just choosing to be America's Cup sailors with a little bit of maybe Volvo in between, like Burling and Tuke. But I mean, um, you know, th- those guys who've gone on to the America's Cup just haven't chosen to do quite so much of the TP sort of star sailing. I, I, well, I, I think they, they are, they're the exception to the rule, I would mm-hmm. say, Stretch. I, I, you know, they are hugely successful in whatever they do and they're driven individuals. I think the problem comes where, for instance, you don't quite go to the game. So, for instance, you would campaign for two or three years in a 49er. You don't quite go to the games and then you're, oh, what do I do now? And that's where Andy is saying that because your skill set is a little bit limited, you do need a mentor, you do need a buddy to pick you up and sort of help you find those good rides, put you in the right place, guide you. And, and funny enough, it goes back to what Pepsi was saying last week. Also in New Zealand, I think they still have a pretty well-rounded sailing calendar, i.e., you know, you, you could quite conceivably turn up at the squadron for Tuesday night racing and Pete will be steering a, I don't know, a young 88 or a something. You know, they will go sailing still for fun as such. Does that have a galley on the left or the right-hand side? Uh, the young 88, I'm, I'm going to plead ignorance, Stretch, sorry, but I will find out for you. Okay, thanks. Like <laughs> these things. <laughs> maybe to sort of celebrate however many years you two have sailed together, maybe you should hire a camper van, deck it out, and go on the Beadsworth uh, Fry European tour. The age we're at now, we'd have, we'd have one each, Stretch. Poor old Ali would be there. <laughs> Wondering what he's signed up for. Yeah. <laughs> we'd have one camper van each and we'd have a driver. That's how old we are now. <laughs> you should come and drive for a stretch. You're not that rich, though. I was about to say, maybe <laughs> things can't be that bad after all. Well, it'll be a stolen camper van and you won't get paid, stretch. <laughs> I'd love to come along anyway. I'm happy. I'm paid. Well, it's been, I've, I've really enjoyed this chat, Andy. I mean, I'm, I am so impressed that someone can just be at the top of their game for, well, you talk about 1985 when you won your first Youth Worlds in a laser. It's a hell of an effort to be still winning a world championship <laughs> in 2019. And, and hopefully you'll win it next year when you're allowed to go world championshiping again. That's for sure. And, uh, and a toast to both of you for somehow managing to sail with each other for so long and still being best mates. It's a brilliant <laughs> It's a rare and rather brilliant thing to have in life, I think. <laughs> Cheers, Stretch. Cheers, hey, thank you. Cheers, Telefra. Cheers, yeah. Andy. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the pod. Leave us a rating on iTunes. Stretch and Stir Fry, signing off. See you soon. <laughs>